On December 9th and 10th, President Biden hosted what he called the Summit for Democracy to address three principal agenda items, defending against authoritarianism, fighting corruption, and advancing human rights. Did this summit make any progress or at least chart a way forward? What's been the reaction from authoritarians, corrupt politicians, and human rights abusers? Based on what criteria were invitations issued or not issued? To discuss such riddles, I'm joined by Brian Katulis, Vice President for Policy at the Middle East Institute, non-resident senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and co-editor of The Liberal Patriot. Also in the studio here at FDD headquarters in our nation's capital, Ruel Marc-Garrect, formerly a Middle East specialist in the CIA's Directorate of Operations and now a senior fellow at FDD. I'm Cliff May. It's nice to have you with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. So my mother used to say, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything. My father used to say, if you can't say something nice, sit next to me. <laughs> it's an old joke, but an old guy. Yeah. Like our producer, Danielle, see, I, I, it's easier to have new audiences than new jokes. You know, yeah, I've learned that. So, but all right, I'm going to start by saying something nice. And that is that President Biden is correct to perceive that in the global struggle between authoritarianism and democracy, democracy is losing and has been for about 15 years, according to Freedom House, right? So now, you'll recall, Brian, well, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Francis Fukuyama and other deep thinkers told us that liberal democracies were sure to spread around the world like coronaviruses. It's not exactly the language he used, but so I guess my first question is, we're going to start, what went wrong? What went wrong is I think you saw the international system adjust to the post-Cold War era where uh, countries like Russia and China rose and they have a different philosophy about how to govern their people, fundamentally different from democratic and free societies. And there are a couple of stumbles along the way, the unforced error of what the United States did after 9-11 and uh, the George W. Bush freedom agenda, which I supported uh, in thought. What's but, the unforced error? What do you mean by that? Just uh, uh, The way it was implemented. Uh, the way the freedom agenda was 100%, implemented? 100%. Okay. Yeah. The Iraq war, uh, first and foremost. But then second, the philosophy there was that we were going to defeat terrorism by spreading freedom and democracy around the world. And again, in principle, I support it. I've worked on those issues. But in practice, uh, we actually did none of those things. And the decline in global freedom, the global recession in democracy actually began around 2005, 2006, in part because the US had made some unforced errors. And then second, countries like Russia and China reawoke and started to actually more aggressively assert their alternative value systems in the international system. Since then, we had very, I think, uneven responses from the Obama administration. And then the Trump administration, in my view, turned its back on these very core principles. And right now, we're trying to regain our footing uh, in the world and reconsolidate first and foremost here at home, but then try to rebuild a sense of uh, common purpose with other democratic systems around the world. Well, you did have the, co the, uh, the color revolutions, uh, the Cedar Revolution in Lebanon, you did have the Arab Spring. A lot of people, I don't think you and I were among them, thought, oh, this is going to be a, 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 a surge of democracy. Maybe you did think. Anyhow, just bring all that in because there was a time when people were, you know, I was on Condi Rice's Committee for the Promotion of Democracy. And in, in the spirit of bipartisan, let me say, I think that achieved very little, as I'm about to say that I think President Biden's summit for democracy achieved very little. But uh, but I think this is a harder thing to do than, than it may appear. Yeah. I mean, I, I probably would disagree with uh, 
Brian and, and uh, I thought that was a little bit too American centric. Uh, I think the expansion of democracy has come in waves to borrow from Samuel Huntington. And I think we have gone through an, another wave uh, and there's always retrogression. Now, I think it's, uh, and I, I think the appeal of democracy and the, what we used to call the third world is still pretty strong. And, uh, the, the increase in tyranny in certain regions, I think probably increases the appeal of democracy. It doesn't make it diminish. I do think there's a problem with the United States and that the United States, uh, has been certainly since World War II. I think Bob Kagan is right since we got rid of slavery has almost been on an ineluctable path of infusing democratic principles into its foreign policy. Um, and after World War II, a liberal interventionism, I think that's the right phrase to use, uh, became much more vigorous. And even though you would have contradictions, some, some countries we would, we would invest in expanding democracy and protecting it. Other countries, we would engage a great deal of hypocrisy. That's just, that's the way the world works. Nevertheless, I think the theme and the course was pretty clearly set. Now, I think there has been a change now, and that has to do, at least for the United States, it has to do with the severe disagreements of left and right, and the agreement on sort of uh, American retrenchment, isolationism. We can dispute which word we want to use, but I think there is a, a general consensus that has consumed big parts of the left and the right that America really isn't in shape uh, and maybe shouldn't. Uh, try to expand uh, democracy abroad, and I think for the time being we're pretty we're pretty bloody crippled. Hmm. Let me put put some of my cards on the table here, uh, and that is to say, I am very dubious that we can plant democracy in foreign soils, but I also think we have an obligation to support. Democrats, those fighting for democracy on foreign soils. I don't think those are the same thing. You see, if you see what I mean. And uh, see, I, I, I know I, you, you disagree. I would strongly go, go. disagree. I think the United go States to it, take has, it had, has had a stunning success story of planting democracy abroad. Where? Oh, South Korea, uh, Japan, Germany, much of Europe. I think if the United States had not been in Europe after World War II, the probability of fascist or communist regression would have been enormous. Okay. It is the United States that has been the engine, the idolin of, of, of democratic success. So I, I, I can't think of another country that has invested so much in this principle. Uh, now, that doesn't mean we're going to continue to do it. Everybody gets tired. Everybody has self-doubts. The United States is now riddled with self-doubt. But, let me, and, but uh, let, me, let me press you on this. So we did that, say, in Germany, two ways. One, we defeated them unconditionally. It wasn't we, we defeated Nazi Germany, and then we stayed in the country because if we had left, the Nazis would have risen again. We defeated Japan unconditionally, and then we stayed in the country. We are been for we have been we are still in South I'm, Korea, twenty thousand troops. I, now, and by I'm the way, I'm a big fan of American intervention. Well, you would you not would you say? I'm and I'm kind of curious of this. Of course, we should have stayed in Iraq after defeating Saddam Hussein because a we did make it more democratic than it has ever been, and b the only way to sustain that would be to stay there. With some numbers, again, well, I mean, at, I, least, at least at least at least ten thousand troops. At w well, which, I wouldn't write. I wouldn't write Iraq completely off yet. I think. I think that's a mistake. Even though it's uh, the dangers from Iran of short circuiting the system are substantial, and obviously it's a deeply, deeply fractured society, largely because Saddam Hussein destroyed it. But the, I, I you know, no, I think the it's it's always helpful if the, if, the, if there is an outside power, particularly if it's a superpower. Uh, that is trying to ensure a democratic path. Uh, that is a, as, as Samuel Huntington noted, that is an important element, was an important element in the third wave of democratic expansion. So I, uh, I think it's a great idea. The only problem is, is I'm not sure there are, the American elite is out of that business. I, I, I have no pretensions of knowing what the American people uh, believe, but I, I would say the American elite on the left and the right 
uh, and Washington, D.C. certainly uh, seem to be fatigued by that idea. As a spokesman for the American elite, Brian. We <laughs> right. Well, no, but I, I try to get out of the bubble and listen to what the American public is. And I think first two points. One, I think Roel somewhat overstates the appetite for retrenchment and retreat. Yes, it's there on the left and then the right. Yeah. But it's overstated in our political dialogue, including in this uh, episode right here, because if you look at the numbers where the American public is at, what I think has happened is that certainly on the right, and I would say the Trumpist ideas are still alive and well, um, on the left, uh, there's a group that <clears throat> punches far above its weight right now and because the media allows them to. But when you look at the numbers of people, when you go outside of the bubble, there is what my colleague Peter Jewell has called the phantom case for retrenchment. There's actually not a lot of appetite for um, amongst ordinary Americans to pull back because they see China. They see uh, other countries. They see challenges like the pandemic right in their lives and climate change that know no borders. So they want America actually to link a bit more the domestic agenda to the international agenda. On the issue of democracy, yes, dead last in the democracy promotion is the dead last number one, uh, uh, number 20 issue on, on the list of priorities for foreign policy. If you look at polling, we've done and others. But I think there's a phantom case of retrenchment and certainly both the right and the left they have these noisy factions, but there is a stronger, and I think we outnumber them, both in terms of public opinion and also in the think tank and uh, elite opinion space. Uh, we're just not as organized. You don't have the squad uh, from the center that is actually using the tools of social media to impress uh, upon uh, mainstream media that they have a bigger voice in the debate. So that's one thing. The second thing, a comment on something both you guys just engaged in, is you started talking a bit more about military intervention as a means to advance democracy. And to me, you know, that was a component certainly in World War II. That was the attempt in Iraq, but it was also the failure. When I look at Iraq and what happened and what the imperfect democracy it has right now, an electoral democracy, a big part of it was the U.S. actually stepping back and getting out of the way, um, you know, trying to provide security imperfectly at different waves. But the key challenge in places like Iraq is uh, related more to political, economic, social trends where the U.S. is actually not present. I was present in Iraq early on and felt like we didn't know uh, the complexities of what was going on here, but that this society needed to debate it amongst themselves. And in a sense, if you look especially the last few years, Despite some negative trends, some killings and murders, there's been an opening of freedom and an interesting sort of experiment underway that isn't focused on U.S. boots on the ground. And that's what frustrates me is that I acknowledge that U.S. boots are important in key places to maintain security. But our debate back here is often so heavily fixated on that factor and not looking at the other tools that are used by ideological movements, political movements, and authoritarian movements, uh, countries like China and others. To, to And we, we are not engaging not fully right. in that. Andrea Merkel is neither loved nor hated. She's irrelevant, as yeah. is all of Germany. Uh, the United States is both loved and hated, and it's because of American capacity. So uh, everything we're talking about rose up during a period of American hegemony. Uh, the United States certainly now doesn't appear like a hegemon. I, I, it, is the capacity still there for it to be one? Certainly. We haven't gone. We're not bankrupt yet, though we're certainly going in that direction. Uh, but you, I, I don't think you, the United States can serve and serve as a model. The United States cannot protect anyone unless you have the military capacity to do it. The United States can't check bad guys unless you have the military capacity to do it. So I agree completely. There are a lot of other areas that you can you, you should work on. Soft power is real, but soft power by itself just makes you an, an offshoot of Brussels, which means you're largely right. irrelevant. Right. But we and we have that capacity. If you look at the vote in the House just last week, where uh, Democrats and Republicans plussed up what Biden uh, had put submitted for his proposal on the Pentagon budget. So we're not in this era of slashing budgets. What I think is missing is integrating that very strong capacity. We have that capacity there with an actual strategy uh, and, uh, and the sort of things we'll talk about on the summit, the, the diplomatic and political tools. It's not all that clearly integrated with this security umbrella that is still existing there, that is still present. And despite 
these voices on the edges, and they are on the edges, to be clear, that are calling for retrenchment. They are also living in an era where they lost in the Democratic Party repeatedly, including the primary against Biden. And then they lost the debate this year, except for one glaring example, Afghanistan. The If you look at the resources and the capacity, to your point on capacity, we have that capacity and it continues to be strong. And I, I would argue unrivaled still to this day, uh, not from Russia and certainly not yet from China on the military front. What we don't have is the strategy that integrates these tools. One thing about Afghanistan, I, I, I do wonder if the timing of this summit, and I question whether it should be called a summit, whether this is the equivalent of Yalta in any, <laughs> in any sense. Uh, well, it's a Zoom gathering. But it was not only a summit, it was the summit for democracy, that's what Biden, Biden called it. Anyhow, I think that's a little grandiose in terms. But it's just a, 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 really a few months after we did what? Abandoned Afghanistan to totalitarian barbarians. Yep. Now, if we're talking about fighting authoritarianism at this summit, we should be talking, there was no mention of the fact that we abandoned Afghanistan, which, and again, I'm not saying Afghanistan was going to become, you know, Switzerland, I, by no means. On the other hand, in Kabul, you know, there were people going to school and having debates and women were, were, were getting into government and people could say, I don't think I need to wear uh, a head covering. I think it's what be, I think I should. I mean, there was. I think the left and the right both gave up. I mean, it's obvious that uh, Trump had given up on it. It's uh, And I think it's fair to say that he was not alone in the Republican Party of giving up on uh, uh, Afghanistan. Uh Biden had had wanted to leave uh, for for a long time, so uh, I uh, I think it was an honest expression of where the political elite is. Right, but then you're not. But then you're not fighting authoritarianism if you're surrendering to authoritarians. Yeah. Again, I, I thought the conference. I mean, I, I'm I'm not opposed to conferences for democracy, though this one really seemed to me more an expression of American angst. Uh, it seemed to be much more about us. It, it, it's it, it, it was very American centric. Uh, Biden intended it to express that his belief in his leadership of the free world. That was the idea. This came out of a, something in the campaign and a piece that he wrote or si at least signed, saying "I'm for, I'm for democracy and and, and freedom." And, and that, I mean, this was that's what he intended this yeah, to be and, about. And, and uh, to me, I think that's important. Uh, to do in the first year, if you compare it especially against what Trump did, not only with Putin at Helsinki, but he repeatedly tried to slash budget uh, for National Endowment for Democracy. And Lindsey Graham and others sort of clawed it back. It, Obama downgraded democracy and human rights, in fact, in his priority. And I think in George W. Bush's second term, there was this turn towards realpolitik. So it's, I think, an important attempt uh, by Biden. But let me go back before we get into the summit. 100% agree with you on the Afghanistan decision and agree with what Roel just said in terms of both it was the left and the right. And uh, the sign for me when President Biden started to use left wing and right wing advocacy language to describe national security choices he was making on Afghanistan, we're going to end the forever war, we're going to end endless war. You're not in your head, Cliff. This is, <laughs> this is the sign that we have completely lost any semblance of the struggles that people in Afghanistan that you were trying to talk about, the, the green shoots. This is where people have turned, averted their eyes, not only in Afghanistan, importantly, I would say Syria for the last few years. Syria has been a shared shame for the United States. If, if Iraq war, in my view, the Iraq war was where America lost its mind, actually thought it was going to do a lot more than it actually did in the initial and paid a lot for it. Syria is where we lost our soul, in a sense. And uh, when you think of the 20 years between 9-11... Right, but he, but, but, right, right. No, but that's a very clever thing. That became, uh, that became the argument for the freedom agenda, which again, why it failed and why I think there's a lack of confidence here at home. And that's ironic because as I was saying earlier, Iraqis are moving towards a much more freer and open space right now. Nobody's paying attention to it in the way that we did in 2003 to 2008. 
most of these issues we're talking about aren't a political issue here at home in the macro sense because we're so fixated on our own issues as we've talked about. Yeah. A, 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 a quick digression, which and I don't really know the I really don't know the answer to this. You mentioned Ned, the National Endowment for Democracy. Yeah. For those who don't know, this is like a, a a big think tank supported by Congress. You don't have to go out and you it's know. It's more than a think tank. It's a do tank. It well, actually, but it, okay, then that's yeah. my question. Yeah. Has it done? I mean, in all these years, can you say, oh yeah, Ned has brought democracy to these countries in Africa. Ned has the sort of thing that we looked at in the the earlier waves of democracy. And I think in these green shoots in places like Afghanistan, you were talking about or in Iraq, they do vital work and continue to this day in supporting. It's not just studying the issue and putting out reports. What they do is they support people in programs. And I worked on these programs in places like Egypt uh, way back in the 1990s. And in the micro sense, I think they are important. And you could point to macro examples where there have been successes, especially in Central and Eastern Europe, when those earlier waves of democracy, those, the NED was set up under the Reagan administration and the two party institutes, NDI and IRI. I think they do tremendous work, uh, Freedom House as well and others. I also think that they need to up their, up their game because the game for the fight for freedom has actually moved into the technology space and, and I, other places. And I would just say, I think it's extremely difficult to measure these time things uh, in, 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 in even decades. Uh, I'll say something I probably shouldn't, though I've probably written it somewhere. So it's, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and, and that is, you know, once upon a time in my former life, uh, I was engaged uh, in covert action in the Middle East and covert action in Iran. And uh, let's just say uh, I and another gentleman uh, uh, you might even say for our amusement, we kept trying to uh, get certain books published uh, in Iran. Uh, all right. And we had uh, some success. Most people, uh, certainly in the clandestine service, would laugh at that exercise, even though it was one that was used regularly after World War II uh, by the agency. But people had largely gotten out of the cultural covert action business by the time I came around. You know, years and years later, um, I saw a rather important individual uh, in Iran reference that book and how it helped change the way he saw the world. Now, you know, these things are, you know, pebble after pebble after pebble, and you stack them all up. It is extremely difficult to assess them if you're before a congressional committee that says, tell me what you've done. Well, you can't really do that. Yeah, and the cultural business, you cannot do it. And it's a mistake to actually attempt to do some business school model where you determine whether you've succeeded or failed. It's just not going to work. Let me give you one more example. I worked uh, in the 1990s in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. And we were working with AID funding, but National Endowment for democracy support as well. And you can't look to the Palestinian political system, especially in Gaza today, and call that a success. But to Royal's point, and to the millions of people who live in a place like the Gaza Strip, there are people there who are living under a system of oppression, who have worked with people like me and others around the world, and including in Central and Eastern Europe, who have these ongoing connections, who have a hope these green shoots you talked about in Afghanistan. And we cynically write off places and forget that these places actually have people. And those people have diversity of views. And those views were shaped by not only the work we did, but then the friendships and relationships that were established. Does that matter? And did it matter in May of this year when there was a big conflict? Not immediately. But I think in the long run, if we support freedom in the world and in the toughest of cases like that, it's those relationships and those activities, uh, the the seeds that are planted, I think, that are essential. I would say that doesn't mean that there aren't meetings and gatherings that are sponsored by Ned that a sensible individual wouldn't take a, a 12-gauge pump and shoot it. <laughs> so, uh, them, I should say. Uh, so, it's uh, that those those two things cohabit. This goes someplace I wanted to go anyhow, so I'll, but I'll, I'll introduce it this way. So when I was on the Connie Rice's Democracy Promotion Committee. Yeah, this is when she was secretary? When she was secretary okay. during the Bush administration. Yeah. Um, the biggest disagreement I had with her and with most of my colleagues was she was when she, that she was in favor of having elections in Gaza. Uh -huh. And I took I, my point of view was, look, until you have freedom of speech, freedom of assembly until someone can get up on a soapbox in Gaza and say, 
here's why I oppose Hamas and here's why I want to make peace with Israel and know that he'll wake up the next morning. You shouldn't have elections because elections alone do not a democracy make. You need human rights first and then. And I think in retrospect, I was right because it was one vote one one, one time. We haven't had votes since. There's been no democracy in Gaza. There's really the Pal- I mean, Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, he was elected for a four-year term, what, 17 years ago or something like yeah, that? Yeah. I think that, and this gets into a, and here's the larger issue I think this raises, that human, too too often, I think this is someplace where Ruel and I disagree, too often we think democracy means you get to vote and that's all it is. And so, for example, Pakistan was invited to this summit for yep. democracy yeah. and Singapore wasn't. Now, if I ask you, would you rather be, I, I can do this for you, would you rather be a citizen of Singapore or a, singer, a citizen of Pakistan? I think I know what your choice would be. Correct me if I'm wrong. By the way, Pakistan declined the invitation. Why? Because democratic Pakistan, I'm making quote marks with my fingers here, yeah. uh, didn't want to offend its totalitarian friends in Beijing. This to me is confused. Yeah, no, it is. It is confused on your um, election point. I mean, uh, point in fact, the Palestinians just had an election uh, a week ago uh, at the municipal level. Not that it was great, but it shows that self-determination is messy. It's it's not us for us here in Washington to actually really decide. We can set guideposts, as you tried to do in the debates that we have. And I'm inclined to agree with you that you need to have certainly more than elections uh, to help produce that environment. But the most important thing, I think, and if you believe in our system and who we are as a country, you need to have that full-blown engagement, which is what Ruel and I were talking about. Full spectrum and not just about the military and not just what the State Department and the USAID people do, but the civil society and the points of connection that are there. Uh, on, on Pakistan, case in point, you know, in 2007, 2008, um, I actually did an assessment as an outside analyst of USAID uh, programming supporting political party training in Pakistan. And it was 10 years of training and these sorts of activities, which though I don't support gun violence, uh, 100, uh, what Ruel said in terms of uh, I think it's very dangerous and actually not good to joke about in, 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 our, in our America today. Um, it, it, when we did you know, a two-month assessment, what we found was that political parties in Pakistan operated exactly like they operated at the start of that 10-year program. And to case in point, after Benazir Bhutto was, was assassinated tragically towards the end of our assessment, her 19-year-old son was appointed the head of her political party. So there are failures where we fall short. We don't absorb those and try to figure out where those engagements um, might change and might be more full spectrum, if you will. And again, I actually think most Americans find this sort of work interesting and supportive. So if, if, you know, and that's why I'm glad uh, the so, summit was held. I guess I am suggesting there was a lack of real thought in terms of this conference of how are we going to make, uh, I'm trying to make this all coherent. Like Hungary was not invited. Yep. Nigeria was. Again, you're going to tell me, again, Hungary is not a, is an imperfect dem- democracy, but they have political parties. They it, would vote. Good, it would have been good to invite them and then slam uh, Orban. I mean, this is, one of the, this is one of the problems I have is that uh, it, it, for this type of conference, I think, to be effective, you have to actually pick out the uh, villains. Now, the villains can have many gradations. Uh, some are uh, far worse than than others, but it uh, it needed to have focus. But uh, I think this gets back to where the Biden administration is in general on foreign policy, and it gets back to where perhaps mo- uh, so many modern liberals are, is that it's extremely difficult for them to do that because it's uh, really judgmental. But this is a, a serious conceptual problem, and it seems to me in the following way that you really have two parts to, to democracy recession. One is to say Hungary is not uh, under Orban as democratic as we'd like it to be, and the other is to say China is attempting, obviously, to replace the U.S. as the global hegemon and is saying our version of authoritarianism is more democratic and better than what America has. I mean, there, I mean we, we want to get into what China said about this conference. I'll give you some quotes. Now, by the way, at what also what happened at this conference that I think was kind of shameful, the White House apparently cut the video of the Taiwan of the Taiwan's digital minister during the summit because her slideshow was ranking the world on the basis of civil rights displayed Taiwan in a different color 
from mainland China. And again, we've heard different reports on this, but it sounds like the White House said, uh-oh, the Chinese, the most authoritarian and, and powerful authoritarian, totalitarian nation in the world, empire in the world, might object to this and might be offended. So at this conference to fight authoritarianism, we have to kowtow to the Chinese. That strikes me as astonishing and shameful. Yeah, I don't. I actually don't know if that actually happened. Well, um, it was cut. Now, why was you know, there well, that, stories that, on why it was cut? Some right. said, oh, it was a technical thing. I, you can, but but it shouldn't have happened, and it certainly <sighs> smells bad. No. Um, so, but whenever I hear stories like that, and haven't done my own research to ask people at the White House and things like this, it throws up a, a, a red flag for me because I don't like the fact that we might be repeating something that might be not factually correct, and it's especially important in this era of truth decay when. Aggressive authoritarian countries like China, and I hope we talk about this, are very much in our debate right now and trying to skew it and to confuse us. One of their strategic tools that they use that they didn't have 20 years ago, and I think is part of this latest sort of recession and the, the lack of confidence we have in ourselves, is that they more aggressively get into YouTube and into my son, my 11-year-old son's sort of TikTok stream in ways that we actually talk about. And we didn't have that 20 years ago because we didn't have these tools. And the tools of uh, social media and internet that were used to help open up societies in 2011 in the Arab world are now being used to close off dissent and in many places. And then importantly, the point I want to make here and tie it back to what you just said about this alleged uh, sort of move by the White House, I would say alleged not to cast aspersions on you or the fact that you brought it up is that we're in this truth decay era where we actually need to be careful about what we repeat and pass around because it actually gives advantage to those authoritarians that are trying to create division and confusion and dysfunction in our open society. I, mean, I, I would just say this on China. I mean, uh, we're, we're, we're struggling to deal with the collapse of an approach and a philosophy that had a bipartisan consensus behind it. And that is that uh, capitalism, commerce soothes the savage beast. Uh, that through uh, engagement, through prosperity, uh, China would adapt and it would moderate. Uh, as it's turned out, fascism adapts pretty well to, uh, to capitalism. We should have known that from the past. Uh, we seem to have forgotten that. I think the principal reason we forgot it is that we don't like to, uh, we, we, we don't want to arm up, uh, that there is a consensus certainly on the left. And I think it's a pretty powerful, uh, movement on the right that we just don't want to spend that type of money to have to deal with China. Uh, there's a reluctance to commit to the defense of Taiwan to make it explicit. Uh, so we, are struggling to find some means, some mechanisms to handle the Chinese. And now we're deeply, deeply intertwined. There is no practical way that we can unwind uh, the economic ties between the United States and Europe and the Chinese. There's simply no way we can do it. So we are going to continue to feed that beast. Uh, and we're going to continue to hope that somehow something happens, that the worst case scenarios don't happen. And the, and the worst case scenario would be, in fact, the conquest of Taiwan. I have a difference of view slightly other than Ruel on this issue of arming up and defense. And again, we have a, a fairly large defense budget, which I think is going to maintain uh, its size right now. And I think we have an adjusted strategy on China in the security and defense realm. And I actually think there's a bipartisan consensus on Taiwan on the Hill. And my sense in the administration is that it's much stronger in its defense to stand up against uh, China's threats than previous administrations. There's been this wake up call where I think it's uh, we're lacking uh, is, is in this political diplomatic information space. And if there's one advantage to this Biden summit for democracy. There's one thing that it actually got done. I think it was one big troll of China. When you see officialdom uh, in the Chinese uh, Communist Party and how it really got under their skin, and it really did. And it was interesting to me that they were throughout and before and after. And I would argue also Russia had it on the brain when when they were and they still are menacing. Ukraine in the run up to the summit, you know, in the early part of that week, what was happening? It was this uh, warning uh, that Biden issued 
you know, with support uh, from democratic allies in Europe, and let's hope that we don't go wobbly here or they don't go wobbly, but they had, and I think Russia was doing this in part because they saw that the summit for democracy. So again, if there's one thing, it was a troll of these countries. And I do think Biden has got it right that the central, when he talks about it this way, because he sometimes says his foreign policy is about a foreign policy for the middle class on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, it's democracies versus authoritarian. I actually think you could blend the two, but they're not consistent in their messaging at home and abroad. And that there's one thing that this summit did is it actually sent a message and we could talk about the details and get under the hood because I actually think there's some useful things that if we hold this administration to account, we could actually build more of a consensus to push, you know, push forward on on the fight well, for freedom. I mean, I think this is a it's a very good point that I mean, authoritarian regimes by definition fear democracies. I mean, they're toxic for authoritarian states. Uh, and also, the way they see events is not necessarily the way we do. I mean, we tend to focus on the details. We tend to focus on the fact that uh, the internal politics of this uh, uh, conference, where they see actually a large discussion of democracy, and that can't possibly, under any circumstances, be good for them. And I would just do the historical point. I mean, when Obama gave his his uh, Cairo speech at the beginning of his presidency, uh, I thought intellectually, historically, it was a pretty lame undertaking. Uh, I'd almost describe it as emetic. Uh, however, uh, I completely misread that uh, because not that long later, the Iranians who had listened to that speech actually thought it said to them that, uh, that the United States was behind uh, the growth of democracy in Iran, that Obama was committed to liberal interventionism. And that's why in the streets they kept yelling out his name with a play in Persian, Obamal, he is with us. Now, they didn't read him correctly. Uh, that's, that's obviously true, but that just shows that, you know, two people can look at the same thing and not get the same answer. So I think we do have to be careful when we're talking about the United States having this discussion about democracy, which in many ways, uh, it, it, it doesn't, doesn't make me happy, uh, that, that, that read may be wrong. And particularly for authoritarians who know internally that their system is based on coercion, that their system by definition has fragility, uh, that it can be much more potent than we think it is. You know, I, I probably disagree with your, I think it's comforting to think, oh, the, the, uh, the various totalitarian and authoritarian countries fear democracy. I'm not sure I believe that Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, and Ali Khamenei fear democracy. I think they see American democracy in America as very decadent and in decline. And the question is, how do we re how do we replace them as world hegemonists? Yeah, they, they uh, fear their own people, though. They, may, that, well, they, they, they do. They do. It's not a contradiction. Yeah. I think you can have both those thoughts in your mind at the same time. Yeah, they fear their own people. And to take this Obama speech example and say two things. First, what did they follow it up with? They follow the Obama administration had, I don't know if you remember this, an entrepreneurial summit for the Muslim world, right? It didn't have any impact at all. And then shortly thereafter, a few years, there was a highly uneven response to the Arab uprisings in Royal. And I have discussed this extensively. And it wasn't because whether we had troops on the ground or other places, it was because the lack of a strategy and lack of a shared approach in terms of diplomacy and political responses. So that's point number one. Point number two, 10 years after Obama gave that speech to um, in Cairo, um, and this points to another issue I think we should discuss is our own political, domestic political divides. Um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo went to Cairo and he gave a speech around the same time. And just to show how self-absorbed we became, um, in the United States and our debate about the Middle East and about foreign policy. That speech in Cairo by Pompeo was about what? Iran. It was uh, 10 years later, it was about Iran. Many Egyptians I talked to were like, why is he coming here to talk about Iran? 
We don't really care that much about Iran. And then the second thing in that speech was that the the response it elicited from Democrats and people who were in the Obama administration, I kid you not, there was about a 1500 word press release um, issued by one of the national security action, one of these groups that popped up a couple of years after Obama administration ended, sort of a placeholder for some of the people who went back into Biden. And it was a 1500 response uh, word response to Pompeo's speech, but then also reaffirming <laughs> Obama's speech 10 years before on engaging the Arab world in Cairo and things like this. But nobody cared because 10 years later, they saw that the United States had underperformed in the fight for freedom in places like Syria, in Yemen, and in other places. And we largely, I think we're seen in the region as just being consumed with our own partisan issues. And this is a problem is that when human rights and democracy and America's support for it in the world becomes a partisan wedge issue around the world. It undercuts our ability to actually get results in the world. And that that's what, you know, that's why I'm a little less cynical about what Biden put up here, tried to put up here on the board a couple of couple of days ago earlier this month. Um, because I actually think we'll talk about it. Some things that if they're held to account, they called for a year of action on these issues. Okay, fine. Yeah. Okay, what's going to happen then? And we can get into the details because I actually think there's some quite good things if if people sort of organize themselves around it and support this. We talked earlier and you wanted to give a, a sort of a shout out to Lithuania. And I quite agree on that because I mean, this is a tiny country. It's uh, threatened by Russia, but it's shown real chutzpah, real cojones yeah. uh, in terms of China a, a, as well. And it's kind of remarkable. And it it deserves, go ahead and say a few words because I do think Lithuania deserves some credit here. Look, this is a, a, a key country that with only 3 million people has punched far above its weight for the last uh, few decades in the fight for freedom. If you remember in the uh, before the collapse of the Soviet Union and then standing up first and foremost to Russia uh, and, and standing solidly. Uh, second, more recently, uh, with this uh, weaponization of migrate migrants you see happening in Belarus and trying to strain them and Lithuania, you know, there as well. But the important thing that you mentioned, and I don't think many people have noticed this here, was it actually uh, strengthened its ties with Taiwan and that pissed off communist China. And China right now is, is subjecting right now Lithuania to uh, tremendous pressure economically, trying to isolate it diplomatically. So to me, and again, I hope we talk about what the summit did, but more important is these principles of standing up for freedom and democracy need to actually be run through the actual U.S. foreign policy uh, with Lithuania. And there were statements by U.S. officials in advance of this summit in Vilnius, which I think were important. But then what is the follow-on program? And one real worry I have for every single U.S. administration, not just Biden, but also Trump and Obama, is our ADD, our attention deficit disorder. We will episodically have conferences or engage on certain issues, but then we don't steadily work these issues and invest. So in a place like Lithuania, we could have tremendous uh, uh, sway bilaterally and then working with European partners to support Lithuania as it's uh, being subjected to pressures from economic pressures, isolation from China. But are we willing to continue that uh, effort or are we just going to move on to the next crisis? Uh-huh. Well, I... Yes, I agree, I agree with that. I think, yeah, without military superiority, you cannot deter. If you cannot deter, your adversaries become they will, more aggressive. That's, Putin, Putin will sniff that out. Yeah, and, no. and Xi Jinping will sniff that out, and Ali Khamenei will sniff that out. I mean, one of the reasons I think you're not <laughs> the American diplomats can't get anywhere in these talks in Vienna where they're not even where the Iranians won't even deign to speak to the Americans directly is because when Ali Khamenei says, "Do we have a military threat from the U.S.?" I think his advisors say, "You know, about equivalent to Equatorial Guinea." I don't, you know, they're they're not going to they're not going to play that card. So don't worry about it. So just proceed as you wish because. You don't. You're. They're. You're not. They're not being deterred. That. Oh my God! Something could happen terrible to us if we if we make them. Yeah, angry. but again, we have the capacity. And frankly, I'm not as cynical about it because you you see these exercises that have never happened before because you didn't have these agreements like the Abraham Accords. These joint exercises where the U.S. is actually involved with Israelis and Emiratis. And again, it, this is all signaling. And maybe I don't fundamentally disagree with how Tehran views these things. But I, I actually don't think you know it goes circles back to the American public appetite for this. 
And it, it's it's hard to find, you know, given the hangover from the Iraq war and other things. But still, our military is out there and defending our, our, our troops and actually working with partners in ways that they didn't before. Um, but is it sending the signal to Tehran? Obviously not, because the diplomacy is not working right now. The, you know, the key point that I think we need to stress that I think too many Americans don't get is that the stronger your military is, the less likely that you will need to use it. And the weaker it is, the more likely, you know, the seven foot guy in the bar is less likely to get challenged uh, and for a fight than than I am. I would also say that it's always a mistake uh, to to suggest that wars don't happen. Wars do happen. It's a constant. It's a historical constant. So you must be prepared to fight them because they will come. Uh, And the notion that you're somehow going to avoid them, I think, is mistaken. The same Uh, military strength that allows you to deter better also allows you to defeat better when it's necessary. Right. Right, but but I just disagree. I think the American public gets it, right? If you look at uh, public opinion polls, Chicago Council on Foreign Relations, 52% say that we, they want to maintain the U.S. presence in the Middle East. 16% say they want to increase it. So you, you basically, our, our debate has been skewed the past few, past few years. And you look at the, again, the votes in Congress, it's still there for a 700 billion plus military budget. The appetite is there. What's missing is a strategy that integrates this diplomacy, because you have slogans, diplomacy first from the Biden administration. Yeah, but you got to back it with a security strategy, as you guys are saying. And often that's not linked. And then we get into what I think are distracted inside the Beltway debates among elites about like different line items in the defense budget. But the bigger picture is we're still strong militarily. And the bigger picture is most Americans support that. I've got a a few more subjects I want to touch on very briefly, because we're probably over time now, but that's okay. But anyhow, but briefly, one is we're talking about human rights at this conference or what is, I'm not sure what that means. Does the U S government currently believe in prioritizing what the founders called natural rights or is freedom of speech equivalent to the right of say, you know, trans women to compete in women's weightlifting competitions or those on the same level to this administration. And what happens when, you know, freedom of religion, which is in the bill of rights, uh, conflicts with some of the newly minted rights by those who call themselves progressives. Again, I think this, these issues were elided rather than rather than explored at, at this at this conference. Look, I think the uh, the approach, and let's just review: the Biden administration uh, announced a presidential initiative for for democratic renewal and uh, four hundred uh, million dollars. Uh, and as I understand it from my friends on the Hill, this is mostly a re they represent the the money that was already available. So it's just a repackaging. We've seen this before from other administrations. 400 million is about what NASA has actually asked for in terms of studies for commercial follow-ons to the international space system. So it's not a lot of money, but it's important. And what it does, and back to sort of the substance of this, is that like, frankly, look, it's a, uh, I think, a bit broad brush across the map, freedom of uh, media, freedom of speech, fighting corruption, which I think we could stop and pause on some important efforts that they may get underway here. Uh, The most important thing, I think, was advancing technology to support democracy. So as the aggressive authoritarians use technology in their own way, again, implementing this would be important. Uh, And and there are also, you know, things, as you mentioned, there was a new $5 million fund for the LGBTQI plus uh, inclusive democracy and empowerment, five million. Okay, and on, I don't think it was so heavily skewed toward those sets of issues that have been heavily politicized here in the United States, with you know from uh, identity issues and sexual identity issues. It's sort of a distraction to me when you look at the bigger picture, broad brush. They were trying to be certainly more inclusive than Secretary Pompeo's religious freedom conference, which I thought was an important thing as someone who's written about the the siege of Christians in the Middle East. It's important to recognize that religious freedom is key and part of this. And these sets of issues, I think, are complicated, Cliff, to discuss because it does touch upon people's identities and who they are here in this country. What I would say is they set the table for what I think is a fairly modest right now initiative, a presidential initiative. They said there's going to be a year of action. Now it would be, my, my attitude is, okay, let's hold their feet to the fire and say, okay, what will be done here? What will be prioritized? And then importantly, how do we build uh, what I would say a transpartisan 
political consensus here at home, <laughs> transpartisan, because there's no longer two parties, yeah, right? Yeah. There are uh, subsets within the parties. And actually, I think, you know, again, I'm giving a bit more credit uh, than I than perhaps is due to the, to the team, because I certainly think there were uh, shortcomings in the conference. But it set the table for, I think, a richer discussion about how do we apply this not only to Lithuania, but to Lebanon and in any other countries that start with the letter L. Um, no, and, and we, we shouldn't limit it to just that. But y- you see what I'm saying is I actually you think there's... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I would, I, I, I would just, I mean, maybe uh, collapse it. I, I mean, I don't really care whether there are Democrats out there who want to say that men wearing dresses is a natural right. I don't care so long as uh, they recognize when what I would call core human rights are being violated. That's not a hard thing to know. It's sort of like what was it Justice Potter, I can't remember, who said about porn. When you see it, you know it. Uh, And uh, if there are tens of thousands of people being arrested and being tortured in Egypt by Field Marshal President for Life, Assisi, that is a violation of human rights. Uh, so it's not difficult to actually know where there are egregious transactions. Uh, and if, if, if we can have agreement about the egregious ones, then let us have disagreements about the others. Now, if, if you try to make climate change into a human freedom, then I'm going to, I think we've got real problems. Climate justice. Yes, because that, that's, that, that's, that's not about individual personal freedom. And, and by the way, also not discussed is we're talking about human rights here. You're talking about what, what, what's happened in Egypt to dissidents. We haven't mentioned that gays get hanged from cranes in Iran. And by the way, the UN Human Rights Council deals with none of this. And the Secretary General of the UN deals with none of this and has nothing to say about any of this. And the Human Rights Council is dominated by China and um, People's Republic of China and other human rights abusers. And it does so without commentary at this conference that I heard. Maybe you heard something I didn't or from, and certainly from the Secretary General of the UN who did speak at this at this conference. And I think that's pretty shameful, too. All right, two more subjects, and then I'll let you say anything you want to just to sum up. One is one of the themes of this conference was corruption. I think corruption is an important issue, but but I'm not sure it really fits in terms of authoritarian versus democratic states. I mean, if you think about it, Ukraine and Mexico are both democratic, more or less, and both, from what I can tell, are chronically corrupt. Now, corruption is important, but this is it's, it's, it's almost a separate issue. And I'll put the other one into again for the interest of time. Biden pledged. $424 million to support investigative journalism. Now, I got to say, as a recovering journalist, I don't approve. He who pays the piper calls the tune. I have no faith this would be independent journalism if it's paid for by the U.S. government or pretty much any other government. I, I absolutely oppose that. Um, I'll let you talk, comment on these two. Then I'll let you give your, your final thoughts because we're because we're, we're, we're going rather long, but I hope people are sitting in their cars <laughs> saying, okay, I'm going to listen to it for another 10 minutes. Um, well, I mean, I would say this. I mean, in my former life, I did have a few journalists on the payroll. Uh, and uh, I thought they did splendidly. <laughs> 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 yeah, well, partisan review. I always, like, you know, I don't. Maybe I don't trust current government. This government. I mean, I'll let you just go with that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, I again. I mean, um, my primary concern is just, uh, you know, I mean, Brian gives me hope. I mean, in the, in the sense that, I mean, if you can find some uh, bipartisan consensus on a on a few issues, if he's right that in America at large, uh, the liberal democratic, and I mean that in the classical sense for both words, that the liberal democratic impulse, which I think has been a national characteristic of Americans, whether they be conservatives on the on the right or the left. If that is still there, then uh, then we're just in a bit of a bad spell. That's all. And uh, assuming we don't go bankrupt from spending too much, uh, we'll we'll recover from it. If that's not true, 
then I think we might be staring uh, at the end of the United States as we have known it since uh, since World War II. And then that would be very disheartening. On the um, journalism fund, I don't know the details of it, but frankly, I see around the world autocratic governments, and I see even in, in my own hometown here in Washington, D.C., uh, papers that are published by the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. Um, so there's propaganda everywhere. And me, I'm a boring, love PBS NewsHour, NPR. I don't watch cable TV. I read about five, six newspapers a morning and try to listen to people from across the spectrum. Do so you, I'm. Do you get fan mail from 80 year old women like I do? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, no. And it's. Uh, so I actually think that this investment in investigative uh, journalism, if it's done right, could actually be very helpful given that architecture. On the corruption front, you know, look, any, every, I would say if you looked at the work, like Sarah Chase has done about the United States. We've had our own pockets where we allow autocrats and criminal gangs and others to launder money in some of our states, in some of our bank systems. So I think it's helpful to try to clean up our act. And I think that's what they're trying to do here and connect it to the global struggle because this sort of where you can hide money offshore and other oh, come places. come on, the Pendergast mach machine gave us Harry Truman. Yeah, It's yeah, not yeah. all bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but the one thing I'd highlight, Cliff, and there are actually two things. One, in, the, the, the one thing this uh, summit actually um, surfaced, which I, I hope is a, a part of the discussion, is the idea of putting export control tools on software and other technologies that are used to enable serious human rights abuses. This is, again... It's tactical, but it's where the rubber hits the road for a lot of people from Myanmar to Uyghurs to other places where we weren't just show we weren't showing up as a country, right? Like we're the we're the country by and large that in Silicon Valley developed these tools. And then we don't have a strategy on the political engagement part um, in the world to deploy these tools in ways that protect people who are fighting for their lives, literally. And I think that, again, is a little sliver. I would, I would but pull Brian, on. Brian, yeah. I mean, help me here historically, yeah. not that I, I follow uh, high tech as much as I should, but I mean, the, some of the tech companies actually initially tried to do the right thing. So, uh, and uh, they get punished for doing the right thing. I mean, China has enormous coercive capacity. Yeah. So, um, you know, you you do have the the the, the problem of uh, the government trying to figure out ways to protect corporations from doing the right thing. If that's what you mean, I would agree with you. I don't think the United States has thought about that terribly. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And it, I think it relates to a much other subject. Well, and I'll wrap up here is this issue of tech regulation in our own country to support uh, not only more competition, but more freedom in, in, in thought and speech at home. And then importantly, in the world, the thing I'd want to say just on the broader issue, which I, I mentioned this earlier, but I think it's fundamentally important. It's sort of why I love talking to folks that I disagree with like you is that unless we actually have more discussions like this, uh, and and again, this is, we have to be more serious about it because I think t too many people, especially in Twitter and social media, have actually been too flippant to and have destroyed uh, social capital and relationship trust uh, in our dialogue here. And that is exploited by our, our, our adversaries and our competitors in the world. They see it and they see that people then won't even sit down with each other in our, far especially our foreign policy discussions. And I, I just think we need more of that. And unfortunately, we have on the right, as you've seen, and I've seen on the left and have worked with some of these people before, they've actually been incentivized to, to further fragment America's consensus about what our role is in the world. That's why I think we're so confused. What gives me hope and optimism is that when you get out of the bubble, most Americans love just talking about these issues. They want to stay engaged in the world. They, they're a little confused by it, how we talk about it, and especially the fights that we have with each other, especially confusing because they, they have a basic back. You know, back I, I, do, I do have, I mean, maybe this is an unfair question, but I mean, can you imagine a Democratic Dean Atchison today? Um, well, I don't think they exist in this current administration, but I could imagine um, it happening at some point. And I would turn it back to you. Could you imagine... A Republican who has sort of strategic thought that doesn't use foreign policy as a wedge issue. I think they're out there, but I don't know if they'll they'll be part of a team that comes in if there's a Republican team that comes after Biden. I think. I mean, I to to try to answer that. I mean, I thought I think the odds of a Reagan too are small. Yeah, they're small. Yeah, uh, I, I just don't believe there's any consensus. Uh, I think the 
vehicles out there uh, that have influence in the Republican Party uh, are pretty that that it would work against a, a rebirth of, a, say, a Reaganite approach are pretty bloody strong. So I'm I'm not optimistic. It could happen. I I do believe foreign policy is a, is in many many ways is an invention of emergency. So it's not hard to dream up scenarios where uh, night and day would be reversed pretty quickly. Yeah. And I, what I would say in closing is that I think if you redefine in the way that most Americans view the world and foreign policy, they see it directly impacting their lives. They see China eating our lunch and having a plan and us not really having that much of a plan. They see immigrants on the southern border and they see it sort of in their lives and they have uh, actually much more nuanced views than the political dialogue about immigration uh, as there's concern also uh, about climate change as much as we want to dismiss it. There's just genuine concern and growing amongst younger Republicans and other places. What they don't have is, and they didn't have it, I think, under the last two presidents, they don't really have it right now, is a leader that's clearly making the case. And they're trying, they're trying and groping for sort of a message. But the appetite is there. It's not all about retrenchment and go home and let China and Iran sort of rule the world. It's like, no, uh, we're the good guys. And these guys are bullies. But somebody's got to come up with a plan. But most of the people talking about it in Washington are just sort of fighting in these small trenches that we don't even understand. Well, fascinating conversation. Maybe we get together again, I don't know, in a few months to see how the... Uh, Summit for Democracy has uh, played out and whether there are action items that are being fulfilled and whether we have other thoughts on this. Until then, Brian, thank you for coming on, for being such a good sport, for, ta for talking with us. Well, thanks for whatever. <laughs> and, I, and I hope everybody else has found this as fascinating as I have. Thanks for being with us today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.